Oh, that felt powerful. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Hi, Carmel. Uh, it's Tuesday, June 20th. I hope you had a great Juneteenth. Uh, happy Juneteenth, everyone. And I'm Amy Eddings, host and producer of Morning Edition at IdeaStream Public Media and moderator for today's forum. I'm really glad to be here today. It's my pleasure to introduce the first forum in a four-part series here in Public Square that will be focusing on the reimagining of downtown Cleveland. Creating a sense of community in our downtown core is essential as the area continues to grow, and it is growing. A recent report released by Downtown Cleveland and Greater Cleveland Partnership revealed significant population increases in the area. For example, the downtown core experienced a 36% growth in households compared to a 4.4% increase. Yeah, I know, pretty stunning uh, for the rest of the city of Cleveland. Downtown is the city's fastest growing neighborhood. And it is a neighborhood. You look around, there's a lot of businesses here, a lot of big corporate headquarters, but there are people who live here too, and we'll be talking about that. Um, as the, our downtown population grows, so too does the demand for diverse housing, jobs, retail, entertainment, and other amenities. All of these play a significant role in creating a vibrant and robust downtown neighborhood that is welcoming, supportive, and inclusive of everybody, yeah. whether they're visiting for a day or looking for a new place to call home. So joining me on this stage for this conversation, to my left, your right, is Joyce Wong, Director of City Planning for the City of Cleveland. Give her a warm welcome. After that is Michael Deemer. He's president and CEO of Downtown Cleveland, formerly the Downtown Cleveland Alliance. And the, the well-dressed gentleman all the way to my far left is Freddie Collier, Senior Vice President of Strategy and New Initiatives at Greater Cleveland Partnership. He was the former City Planning Director from 2014 until 2022, right? You went through the pandemic years. Yeah. All right, we're going to be talking about it. Yes, you did. We're going to be talking about that. All right, so just a few notes for our live stream audience. If you have a question for our panelists, text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program when we have our Q&A. So, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Joyce, Michael, and Freddie. All right, let's get this party started. So, Michael, I'm going to start with you. Let's get to the elephant in the room right away. Let's just <laughs> knock this one out. Crime. Yeah. Just last week, I think I saw you on a, a, a Three News report. There was a man who was pistol-whipped in broad daylight. His vehicle was stolen outside the Thirsty Parrot. That's a bar that you see along East 9th Street, right near Progressive Field. Um, not a good look when you're trying to invite people to make downtown your home. What can you and your city and Cuyahoga County partners do to make people feel safe downtown? Yeah, Amy, uh, thanks for beginning with a softball. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think we in, in downtown, and I think I could... I rarely speak for the mayor, but on this issue, we talk about it all the time, and I'm comfortable in speaking for him and saying that, you know, I think the city's prior number one priority is safety, number two is safety, and number three is safety. Right. And 
we've kind of built a brand in downtown Cleveland around recognizing that having a clean, safe, welcoming, and attractive environment for people to live, work, and play in is really where it all begins. So, so safety truly is paramount. And so, you know, when we have an incident uh, like the the one that you described that occurred last week, uh, it uh, it sets us back. Uh, it, it alarms and concerns us. Uh, and what we really try to do is make sure that we're, we're stepping back and looking at how we're addressing safety. Are we doing everything that we can? And what can we do better? And of course, over time, we know crime rates are going to bounce up and down. Over the long term, we want to see those trends uh, bend down. And over the course of the first quarter of this year, uh, we did see the crime trends bending down. But again, we're trying to take a long-term view on, on making sure that we're keeping downtown safe over time. Uh, I could say uh, specifically uh, some of the things that we're doing at downtown Cleveland, uh, we've increased our ambassador presence. So uh, our most visible uh, asset are our clean and safe ambassadors, and they're out there on duty 7 a.m. to midnight uh, until 3.30 on, on some nights, seven days a week. Uh, and they're there to help keep the environment clean, safe, and welcoming. Uh, they can help de-escalate situations as they arise. They can summon help uh, from the Cleveland Division of Police when they arrive. Uh, they can connect uh, individuals in need with outreach specialists to help them get uh, shelter and mental health services and other social services. So we, we really try to, to look at this uh, comprehensively. We've got a great partnership with the city of Cleveland uh, that I think is throwing every resource that it can at making sure that the city and specifically downtown are safe. Uh, we can always do more. We can always do better. And when we hear of incidents like the ones uh, that happened last week, you know, I think it just forces us to, to double down and make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to create that safe environment. Mm -hmm. Freddie, I know you've studied city planning. I mean, you're steeped in this, and I'm, I know you know Jane Jacobs and her 1961 classic, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. She talks a lot about eyes on the street sure. as a way of keeping crime down. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering how much of this is a chicken and egg situation, right? Like, like, will crime come down, or will the perception of downtown safety be greater the more there are people on the street? the more there are residents downtown. Mm -hmm. or and, and meanwhile, you're fighting that perception that there's a lot of crime downtown and it's yeah. not a safe place to live and work. So can you tell me a little bit about that yeah. conundrum? Sure, so one thing I would like to say is that there's a reality between what's really going on and perception. And I wanna really talk about the reality of things. The fact of the matter is, is when you have people, when you have density, when you have population that does put eyes on the streets, you have a situation where you have people who feel safe because they're being watched. This is true. But when you talk about situations that are extreme, like the one you just uh, described, those are anomalies. That's not the standard. That is not typically what happens in the downtown. But when you see that in headlines and when you see that um, uh, promoted, then it becomes that to people, right? Now, we all know that we don't want any crime in our downtown, but the reality is, is when you have people, you have conflict sometimes. And I think what Michael Deemer articulated with respect to everybody coming together, working together, continuing to populate downtown, putting eyes on the street, programming, you'll start to see those types of situations dissipate. 
that's just the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and to your point, there's a big difference between the stats and the perception. Uh, as a former New Yorker, people would say to me, oh my gosh, the subways are so scary and so unsafe, and it takes one bad incident of somebody being pushed mm-hmm. onto the track to make everybody think that. Mm-hmm. Fact is, I found the subways one of the safest and easiest and most convenient ways to travel. And, and yeah, but, but people's perception of it was like, I'm not going, I'm not doing that. Joyce, I wanted to bring the question to you. As head of city planning, how does public safety figure into your thinking of the physical space of downtown, uh, into issues like zoning and parking and storefront vacancies? I'm wondering if there's a role of public safety in how you conceptualize planning for the city. Sure. Thank you. Um, and I would, I would actually add, you know, for me, my perspective is that actually nothing in life is guaranteed. And you have to, you have to base, you know, your decisions on what is, um, you know, you know, th- now with gun violence everywhere, mm-hmm. nothing really is guaranteed. And so mm-hmm. that, that's sort of my perspective. Um, but we can do our best to really address and make sure that there are um, eyes on the street, as, as uh, former director Collier mentioned. And uh, ultimately, I think coming out of the pandemic, which is probably going to be one of the discussion points today, is how do we get back to having, uh, inviting people to come out once again um, to, uh, you know, come to our retail, um, come out for a rest, you know, come out to the park. Um, and I think that ultimately as we move into uh, and getting more comfortable with the idea that downtown is a neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, that we're gonna have to really focus a lot of efforts from a planning perspective on those places of social connectedness, mm-hmm. of green spaces, mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, even areas where many different people can come together. Um, because I think that social connectedness is ultimately is what gonna tie all of us together coming out of these really difficult mm-hmm. times. Sure. And I think that's why we see mm-hmm. sort of some of these um, mm-hmm. social issues coming to surface is mm-hmm. mental health needs are real, mm-hmm. social connection and that desire is real. Mm-hmm. And so how do we then create more of those mm-hmm. um, areas of connection again? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Joyce. Um, Freddie, the recent study by the Greater Cleveland Partnership in downtown Cleveland shows residents are moving into the city's core, Mm -hmm. despite the headlines about crime. A 22% increase from 2010 to 2020. That's pretty impressive. What is attracting people to downtown? Mm -hmm. And do they stay, or is there a lot of churn? Mm. Maybe as a result of of crime, maybe as a result of high rents. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of churn? No, uh, first of all, I would think that one of the reasons why you see people coming into downtown is because of the amenities that are offered. Um, Downtown is probably one of the only neighborhoods where you can get the plethora of amenity that you have. And let me just kind of identify what I mean when I say amenity. Amenities go beyond the basics of a neighborhood. Yes, there's housing in every neighborhood. Yes, there's retail in every neighborhood. Yes, there's recreation in the neighborhood to varying degrees. But when you talk about amenities, you're talking about differentiators. Not every neighborhood can boast a waterfront and a riverfront. Not every neighborhood can uh, boast a large volume of transportation assets and resources. Not every neighborhood is the melting pot of an entire region, right? So all of these things make downtown extremely unique. Now, the flip side to that, though, when we think about downtown, we have to think about 
our housing stock and our housing, uh, people talk about affordability. Affordability is relative. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are moving downtown, downtown is affordable in many respects compared to other places throughout the country. And when you think about our downtown compared to some of our coastal cities, downtown Cleveland is a very comfortable place to live. Cleveland in general in our region is a very comfortable place to live. Now I'm not negating the fact that there are some issues with respect to people being able to afford to live downtown, but that goes into the other conversation around neighborhood, which is job creation and business development. And that's something that we're very focused on at uh, GCP is really creating the environments that businesses want to be in. And one of the things that I often talk to our CEO, uh, we talk about this a lot, is really this connection with big business interests and community interests. And we strongly believe at GCP that the nexus of the two is place and talent. And that's really where a lot of the work that we're focused on is really creating these quality urban places and really uh, honing in on trying to attract and develop talent to draw business interests. And I think collectively, when you have all of those ingredients, that is really what addresses the crime issue. And this is where neighborhoods become sort of this self-sustaining machine. But we just have to keep massaging and working it until we get it to that point. You mentioned jobs. I'm going to jump forward to that section in my script because you opened the door to that. Um, Cleveland was hit hard by the 2008 Great Recession. Between 2002 and 2019, there was a 17% decrease in the number of jobs in the downtown core. Your report found a correlation. Mm -hmm. um, hard to tease out, but there is a correlation between the number of jobs and the number of people moving into an area and wanting to live into an, in an area. Freddie, I'm wondering, since this, was the, this deal was negotiated under, under your tenure as city planner, how much of a game sh changer is the Sherwin-Williams headquarters going to be? So I would say it would be significant. Um, and I'm going to be very transparent with respect to Sherwin-Williams. Uh, Sherwin-Williams was and is a mainstay, no pun intended, in the Cleveland region. And retaining that organization uh, was key uh, for the city of Cleveland. What's interesting about this transition is that you're dumping 3,000 some odd people right in the heart of downtown. That's very different. And is that an increase over what their, their former headquarters? Is that an increase? So um, I don't know what the numbers exactly are, so I'm not going to pretend to. It's been a year. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know the fact that with that level of infusion of population in the heart of downtown, that it can, I didn't say will, can have a ripple effect. Now it's gonna depend on a couple of things. Can we get those folks who are coming into work every day living in these new units? That's number one. Can we get these folks coming out for lunch, spending time and resources, and making sure that on Friday nights that they're going to the bar, getting wasted, going to games, <laughs> hanging out, and doing whatever they do. So yes, it can happen. And I think that it is a game changer. But we need to multiply that times 10 with right. respect to attracting companies and getting our population and those business, uh, the talent to stay in our core and in our, our region. All right. Getting drunk. This is an entertainment district. I lived in the warehouse district. I moved out because it was more affordable to live in Fairview Park. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I was really tired of those Cleveland Brown games, 9 a.m., mm-hmm. let's go brownies mm-hmm. with the bars, like right on West 6. Uh-huh. Drove me nuts. So how do you balance that? You want residents to live here, but I know from the residents, my fellow residents in the warehouse district, mm-hmm. people were making calls all the time about noise and nuisance complaints. Michael, I'm, I'm, as the head of uh, downtown Cleveland, mm. I'm sure you've had conversations about that with your stakeholders, the businesses that you're attracting, the residents that you're trying to attract. How do you balance that? Making it a 24-7 neighborhood at the same time, you know, where you're, uh, noise is a factor. Yeah. Uh, uh, public nuisance is a factor. Public drunkenness is a factor. Yeah, I, I think uh, we're, we're, we're building a downtown to compete with other downtowns. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not building a downtown to compete with uh, suburban neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we, we just aren't. And, and the goal here is to build uh, a great city core that competes for talent effectively mm-hmm. with the great city cores around North America and, to be honest, around the world. I mean, the vision is to create a, a global city uh, that's a magnet for talent, and that we're doing the things that we need to do with uh, the physical environment, whether that's a visible safety presence, whether that's uh, designing environments like this one and programming them uh, with activities like the ones behind us and like uh, the one that we're participating in today, uh, and attracting investments uh, like the Sherwin Williams project and like some of the other residential investments around us. Uh, but again, the, the the goal is is not to compete with uh, the the bedroom communities and and, and suburbs. Uh, we have an in, intergenerational downtown. We want to continue to build an in, intergenerational downtown. Um, but downtowns are a little bit messy, and that's okay. That's, right. uh, that's okay. That's that's part of the beauty of it. Uh, we embrace that, and and we we work at uh, finding the right mix and the right balance every day. But uh, again, the the goal here is to create a, a great global city core. I like that. It's a little messy. Joyce, you wanted to comment on this. Yeah, I, I did. And I, I think that you know, Michael put it perfectly that we are competing not just with our area, our regional you know, cities, but it's really about cities around the world. And um, it's interesting because if you take a look at some of the largest cities around the world, most people live in high-density areas. Yep. They raise their families in high-density areas. And people live in flats. They live in apartments or condos. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a little bit, you know, We deviate in that people are sort of like really drawn to single family housing um, because in downtown is where you have the richness of transportation and amenities and everything coming together. And I did want to speak to families for one moment because I think that I'm a millennial and I have a family now. Um, We lived just outside downtown in the Asia town area for a few years. And then there are all many of you in, in the audience too who have families who live downtown and you know, oftentimes people are like, oh, how do you do it? And mm-hmm. babies sleep. They get used to the noise. Um, yeah. they, you know, there's, once you're used to, to an environment, it's, it's there. It's part of your everyday environment. And I think we ought not to um, discount that, that that's the liveliness. That's, that's one of the reasons why people choose to live downtown is because there's action, there's activity around you. I wanted to um, transition to housing and talk a little bit more about that. The downtown housing demand study by the Greater Cleveland Partnership and Downtown Cleveland found greater downtown households are becoming whiter 
56% compared to 51% in 2010. It's growing younger with the largest group, 25 to 34-year-olds, and it's wealthier than the city of Cleveland as a whole. Freddie, I know your Connecting Cleveland 2020 plan uh, had a, as part of its vision a community, and I'm quoting here, a community where racial, ethnic, and social diversity is not simply tolerated, but embraced. Mm -hmm. Do these statistics trouble you? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say they trouble me. Um, they're the reality. Now, one statistic that you didn't mention that's in that study shows the growth in the Hispanic population downtown, right? So that diversity comes and fits and starts. Now, it's gonna be all about the conditions that we continue to set. That's really important, right? So, yeah, you can look at that 56% uh, increase in white, uh, upper middle class or middle class individual uh, as uh, something that lets us know that we need to put more effort into promoting diversity in our downtown core. But the way that you operationalize that is really to create a downtown of choice. Right, and that downtown of choice really is something that requires different products, uh, various price points, yep. depending on where you are in downtown. And I think over time, those statistics ebb and flow. I never get caught up in a moment in time type of statistic and let that define the situation. That's just an indicator of what you need to do to course correct if in fact you find that concerning. But I just think that's the reality of what's happening today. And one other thing I will add with respect to the census, <laughs> we worked on the census. Downtown population is probably higher than even what that book says. I guarantee it. Yeah. The reason why I can guarantee it, because I know the individuals who did not fill out that form, hmm. right? So be careful with those statistics and take them for what they are, right? But always continue to work toward what you desire your community and your city to become. In the uh, five minutes we have left before we get to Q&A, uh, Joyce, how is your department working to encourage economic diversity, so-called workforce housing? Can you make that a requirement in exchange for any subsidies? Uh, that's a, a very complicated question. Um, well, I will say this, that our state currently does not have any workforce subsidy, which is different than other states. And honestly, it's really difficult to get workforce housing when construction costs are so high and we want to use, we want to pay fair wages. Construction costs are high. Interest and our average, rates are up. Interest rates are up and our rental rates compared to other cities is still below kind of the construction costs. So we have a gap here. Um, with that being said though, I think we need to advocate for more workforce style subsidy. That is a product that is missing in our realm and there's another way that some, some folks, a lot of urban planners do try to get at this problem, which is increasing the supply. Um, and some may call it a theory, right? But others say if you increase the supply like you have in downtown, then you will begin to see sort of the market balance out over not just five, 10 years, but over time. And you're beginning to see rental rates in downtown Cleveland that are actually less than some of the new construction in some of our neighborhoods because they've been supplied. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, oftentimes we often come at the subsidy discussion, but we need to think about how we increase more options for housing everywhere um, and ensure that, um, uh, you know, people have, have choices. 
I did want to talk a little bit about um, the last point, uh, which remind me again what we were just talking about. Um, the census and right. yes. uh, communities that are point here. Point in time. Point in time. And I, I did want to note for the record too that there are Chinese seniors that live downtown. They take the bus to go to the grocery store in Asia Town and come back. There are black elders who live downtown. There are tons of international students and their families living on the eastern edge of downtown. And you know, I think oftentimes these narratives make these other communities invisible, but mm -hmm. we have to remember mm -hmm. that our downtown is actually diverse. Yep. These families utilize these spaces all the time, but we, we allow sort of other narratives to color our impressions. Um, and I do think that one final point I wanted to raise about income is I actually think that we may not be addressing the right issue of well, downtown has greater incomes than the average. The average Clevelander's income is in the $30,000 range. Like that is actually the thing that we should be concerned about. And the central neighborhood who is adjacent to downtown, their average incomes are $10,000. Now, to me, the real question is how do we work to ensure that we are raising the incomes and allowing opportunities for folks who fall into that range yep. so that their quality of life can be increased, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to flip that question a little yeah. bit because I think we need to think about how we're serving our neighborhoods and not just like, oh, well, yep. benefits, benefits, but we want every we want people to benefit yep. and we need to increase all That's of right. those statistics. Thank you, Joyce. Right. Uh, Michael, last question. There's a lot of housing demand in Cleveland's near west side in Ohio City and Detroit Shoreway. Are these markets in downtown pulling residents from one another? Are they competing with one another? Is there enough demand to justify continued apartment buildings going up and downtown? Well, thanks for ending with a softball. There's absolutely absolutely uh, uh, demand. Uh, and I think the, the, the real key point coming out of uh, the housing demand study is that uh, the near west side in downtown markets are not pulling from one another. They're, they're functioning uh, largely like, like one single market that's uh, growing uh, together. And, you know, we estimate in, in the study very, very conservatively uh, that we'll be able to reach uh, over 30,000 residents by the end of the decade. And I think with smart investments, uh, with paying attention to the, the diversity of housing that we need, uh, paying attention to the public realm that we've talked about, uh, we could blow past that uh, if we're smart with the, the decisions that we make uh, from a public policy standpoint. And I think the this, this study also tells us, kind of uh, tying together the, the points that um, the former and current planning directors were just making, uh, that there, there's real opportunity uh, on the, the Near East side in particular for uh, affordable quality uh, housing that is well connected to uh, both downtown and University Circle is the two largest concentrations uh, of jobs uh, in Cuyahoga County. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we fall into the trap in Cleveland of, of thinking about uh, places, uh, land along rapid stops that might be a, a 10 to 15 minute train ride outside of the core uh, to downtown or to University Circle, like, like it's on a, another planet. Uh, and it's right there, uh, well-connected. And I think that the city's got some terrific transit-oriented development plans uh, that are already starting to encourage higher-density housing in the core 
And I think we've got great opportunity in particular between downtown and uni university circle to create really diverse, affordable uh, neighborhoods that have great access to jobs. Michael Deemer, Joyce Wong, Freddie Collier, thank you so much. We are now opening it up to your questions. For our live stream audience, for those recently joining, I'm Amy Eddings, host and producer of Morning Edition at WKSU, 89.7 on your dial, IdeaStream Public Media. Uh, again, joined by Freddie Collier of Greater Cleveland Partnership, Michael Deemer of Downtown Cleveland, and Joyce Wong with the City of Cleveland. We are welcoming questions from everyone, including all of you sitting in the sunshine here in front of me. Uh, City Club members, guests, students, those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our panelists, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. City Club staff will try to work it into the program. Okay. Do we have a first question? And where am I supposed Oh, here we go. Hi. Hi. What's Hi. your name? My name is Laura McShane. Um, I heard about this program right before I got here, so I jumped on my bike. Oh, and look at I you. And I rode down West 41st Street, which is a one-way street that is a policy that Cleveland could use more to make it safer for people to, to cycle. Um, got on the Red Line Greenway and then took the safe um, route over the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge, which has a protected um, pedestrian walkway. Um, I'm here because um, Glenn Stover, who was a champion for the Red Line Greenway, couldn't be here. He's hustling, always hustling. Um, but um, there's a safe route, a federal safe route grant um, due on July 10th. And I would like to know if the city will leverage the assets we have. We have all-purpose trails that are maintained year-round by the Cleveland Metro Parks. And I just came from Pittsburgh, and I don't know that they can say that. But we can. So um, what I'm asking for is trans, and I see Greater Cleveland RTA is here. I would have come down on RTA if I had the time, but I can. I take it all the time. I put my bike on the on the train. Transit plus trails plus schools plus libraries plus parks. That's what Cleveland offers over any other metropolitan area. Add the waterfront. What's so are wrong? you are you asking if the city of Cleveland is going has to apply it, for this federal has it applied, grant? applied, and please just finish the Red Line Greenway as a priority. I know that the city hasn't got the funding yet for the Lorraine bike track. Supposedly, Superior is um, happening on 2024. That would at least get an east side to west side mm -hmm. safe. Safe is the word, route. Thank you for your question. Joyce, I'll turn it over to you first as the current city planning director. Sure. So thank you for the question, Laura. Um, so to your first question about the Safe Streets for All grant, which is a part of the IIJA, it's the massive infrastructure bill that was passed um, over the pandemic. Um, we have, city has been applying for almost every grant, every opportunity, and we are coordinating with our partners at NOACA and other large public agencies on those things. So um, to that specific grant, we have applied in the past. Undoubtedly, we will be applying again. Um, to your point about trails, you know, I, I want to make a larger point: um, is that under Director Collier, actually, there was a study done where you saw all these trail points kind of coming 
coming close to downtown, but never really fully reaching downtown or crossing through downtown. And we recognize that's a big gap right now in our mobility. Um, and you know, it is essential for us mm -hmm. to really take a hard look at our streets right now. Um, we have a mobility vision that we intend to pursue over the next year. We will be doing citywide mobility planning um, to really say, hey, how do we take our excess capacity, AKA our wide roads, sure and turn those into more active spaces. So we have a lot actually to consider. We have the new, newly passed uh, uh, parking meters. Yes, me meters. <laughs> we'll have EV charging stations coming online soon. We are uh, in the process of bringing to city council a new parklet legislation, which will increase small business owners' abilities to utilize parking spaces as extra capacity for seating, as well as nonprofit organizations. So we have a lot of goals in our city streets, and it's going to take some careful planning to make sure that we can, mm -hmm. you know, do all of those things and bike, uh, bike infrastructure. <laughs> Thanks, well, Joyce. Our next question. Yes, sir. Hi. Hi. Hi, my name is Kevin Cronin. I was part of all the bike infrastructure improvements that we've been fighting for for decades. Uh, the mayor recently came out with a visioning idea, and I know, Joyce, you're big on visioning is a major part of your job. Freddie, you've been visioning for decades now. Um, one thing I want to throw out is an idea for discussion that uh, has been in the background for a long, long time and never really advanced to a sufficient debate, and that would be car-free Euclid Avenue. You can you can go uh, you you can restrict uh, cars and access. You would of course have public transportation, uh, fire and EMS and police, of course. Uh, but you would restrict uh, the the car traffic. It would improve safety. It would improve clean air. It would reduce pollution, and it would probably be an incentive for retail down and up and down Euclid. I was just riding my bike recently, and I noticed that you could go from the unions union club on Euclid Avenue all the way to 18th Street before you ever came across a parking lot that required Euclid Avenue. Mm -hmm. And the same is true on 12th Street, where you, the US Bank garage is way up by Prospect. So I'm asking whether that is in the realm of consideration for your organizations and whether we could do that, something along those lines. And if so, uh, how, do we, how do I move in that direction? Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Michael, do you want to yeah, take I'll, a bite? I'll jump in first. I think, uh, one, I, I want to uh, piggyback off uh, Joyce's comments about uh, bike mobility infrastructure heading into downtown, uh, which we fully support and, and we're excited about. Uh, one of the things I'm most excited about with the, the Bib administration is being able to work with them on protected bike lanes through downtown. So you can get around downtown on bikes or, or scooters or other shared mobility devices uh, in, in protected lanes uh, getting into downtown and around downtown. Uh, I think that leads uh, into your, your question about Euclid Avenue uh, specifically. Uh, it's something that uh, we've, we've talked about in, internally uh, before. Uh, there, are, uh, there are challenges with uh, accessing parking garages uh, between Public Square and East 9th, uh, there are uh, connecting streets like E6 that create some challenges. Um, we have closed, we've experimented with it and closed it for um, events where we've had lunch in the lane uh, on Euclid Avenue and, and closed it off to automobile traffic. 
Um, it, it, it's, uh, th there's, some, there's some challenges there, but philosophically, the idea of creating a more pedestrian-oriented environment, uh, a more bicycle-friendly environment uh, throughout downtown is one uh, that I know at downtown Cleveland we're, we're constantly uh, looking for opportunities to do and talking to uh, the leadership about the city about exploring. Freddie, is there anything you want to add? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's a couple of things I just want to add with respect to how we've matured with respect to bicycle infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And it is a maturation process. Uh, when you talk about uh, protected lanes in downtown 10 years ago, that was taboo, right? So we're at a point now where there's this uh, change in the lifestyle of many Americans uh, that embrace multimodal infrastructure, right? We haven't even started talking about the need for what the 21st century is gonna call for for streets, bikes, buses, you know, um, driverless vehicles, driverless all of these cars. things. This yeah. is not tomorrow. This stuff is like knocking at the door. You know, so we gotta think about where we are in our maturation. The one thing that I do wanna emphasize that we did a really good job of as we lead up to the work that's going on now, and Joyce knows this um, as planning directors, we're fraternity, right? And this is a continuum. You know, and we have to continue to move the ball down the field. And with the transportation aspect, that's a real key, you know, uh, point. So we really envision a hierarchy of trails in the city of Cleveland. Protected bike lanes, off-road trails, et cetera. And we believe that the region needs to be connected into the core city. And when you look at things like the tour, uh, towpath trail, that's a regional asset that connects into the core, right? There are um, other uh, proposals on the table right now, such as the Midway uh, protected uh, cycle track that will connect downtown to east side neighborhoods, the Lorraine cycle track on the uh, west side. So this takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of massaging. It takes a lot of political advocacy <laughs> uh, to make these things happen, and it takes funding, right? So we're at this really uh, key point where we have to leverage these very limited resources that are on the table now to make a goal of a lot of the work that's been on the table. And, and you, by limited resources, you mean the ARPA money that we have, the city of Cleveland. And uh, leverage, we're talking about leveraging. We're not just talking about ARPA. I think it's very important because you know people default to this once in a lifetime pot where the thinking of the administration, the current administration and everyone, Greater Cleveland Partnership is how do we leverage resources? We have to take that one-time money and make it work. Yeah, yeah. Like Joyce, quick comment on that. Yeah, I would say too, you know, right now we depend on the general fund to leverage uh, a bonding capacity to make sure that we can have the streets that we want. And just to give some reality, um, our general fund for streets is $15 million. That's one mile of a complete and green street like realistically. Wow. So what we have to do is we oftentimes have to bond in advance to make yep. sure that the streets are designed with a scope where we have a future, um, you know, and so, so this is a reality. This is like mm -hmm. a, a real resource constraint that we're working with. Yep. However, I think that there's a lot of opportunity and I, I wanna make the point here about like iterative work and piloting yep. because there are other solutions that include quick build that I know many of you are advocates for, um, which still require resources. Mm -hmm. um, but also, 
I think piloting is also a really good way to learn quickly, come up with processes. And so open streets and um, creating areas where there are uh, people with consensus, right? You have, you know, it's oftentimes building some consensus with area tenants. Um, that, you know, those are the things that we're really interested in, kind of like getting out the door and testing. So hopefully we'll be seeing more of that in the next year to five years. Looks like we have another question. Did somebody tweet a question? Yeah. Okay. This says, downtown has never seemed more vibrant. Can we talk about some of the innovative community engagement we are having and opportunities for residents and visitors around the lakefront and access to it from downtown? I can take that one because we're actively working on lakefront planning now. Um, it's been a plan that's been in place for over 100 years. Oh and so goodness. now this is a point in time which we're saying this will be the last planning effort because we are going to make a strong downtown connection um, you know, from let's just say public square, going down the malls and to our, our lakefront. Um, so your question was around community engagement and sort of the energy behind downtown, as well as it seems like a second part was how, how we've been focusing community engagement around the lakefront. Um, and I think that we are taking many different approaches towards community engagement. Of course, there's focus groups, large scale, uh, public engagements, which we're incorporating art and sort of different types of engagement into, um, but also very neighborhood-based, mm -hmm. thinking about what does it mean to include well-being yeah. into our con concept of the lakefront. And I think oftentimes the narrative of the lakefront for Cleveland has been, okay, it's going to be this boon, it's this economic development connection, but it, it's it's actually, you know, for me personally, how do we reconnect to the heritage of our lake mm -hmm. and not just see our lake as something extractive mm -hmm. for our entertainment or for industry, mm -hmm. but it's actually seeing the lakefront as, Lake Erie is a stakeholder in our region. Mm. And how do we kind of reconnect um, people to lake in a reciprocal relationship mm -hmm. that um, is really important to us. It's, it's really important to our identity all the way from you know, the native um, peoples that were here Lakefront, riverfront connections were essential to the identity of who we are. And so, you know, I think for me, the engagement comes from a place of reconnecting to our heritage and we can each see ourselves in that heritage. We all know that a study is only as good as the energy that goes behind it to implement it. There's tons of studies gathering dust on a bookshelf somewhere. So you really think that this idea of a, a lakefront bridge is going to happen. I'm, I was looking back in, 2021, I think that when the Cleveland Browns first announced that they were interested in this land bridge over the shoreway and over the railroad tracks that divide downtown from where they sit on the lakefront, 229 million. What's the estimated price tag now, and how do you balance that with all of the other infrastructure needs that that Cleveland needs? So. There is not a full estimate yet because we're still in planning. Those estimates come in the design phase, which will come hopefully kick off in uh, 2024. But I think what's really unique about our time is that the federal government has released different pots of money. And I, I think that's a really important thing to understand is that things are earmarked for different types of projects. So big infrastructure projects oftentimes aren't meant for neighborhood level projects, right? So. There are funds out there right now through IIJA that really discuss these types of uh, connection projects and, and 
I think as a region, what's really important is that we're all coordinated together and that we have a level of being on the same page, whether it's nonprofit, chamber of commerce, yep. our public agencies around our priorities. Yep. And Can so I, that yeah. is what's gonna make the difference. Yeah, and I wanna, I wanna double down on that because that, that is key. Uh, when you look at sort of where we are today with respect to the level of coordination, um, the establishment of Waterfront Development Authority is gonna be key into that, uh, where you have an entity that's focused, laser-like every day, you know, whether uh, leadership changes, it doesn't matter, but if you have that Waterfront Development and Authority, they can be honed in on waterfront and water-related development issues 24-7. That's really important. Now, we're in a watershed moment where you have uh, business, nonprofit, and everybody aligned with the seismic shift in leadership that you have. And we're very much New mayor, new county executive. Everything is shifted, you know, and we have to take full advantage of that in order to see these things to fruition. So you got the right teams of people, you got the right resources, the political time, the economic time, and real time are aligned in this moment. And I want to emphasize in this moment, right? And this right, is where just it's like important. the census stats. Yeah, you just can't, in this moment. Yeah, you can't lose that momentum because right. whatever happens in this next, I would say, five years, that's what we're going to be dealing with for a long time. So we need to keep it tight, keep it focused, and really try to move and leverage as much as humanly possible during this, this time period. And that means everybody stay involved and stay on your um, representatives. Another question from the microphone. Mm -hmm. Hi, good, good afternoon. Oh, my name is Herc Rousey. I am both an officer and a docent at Cleveland Gray's Armory Museum, uh, an organization that's been downtown for over 180 years. My question is, what role do you see for small, nonprofit, cultural, historical organizations, and the flip side of that, how can organizations like ours help grow the downtown uh, neighborhood? Thank you. Thank you for your question. Yeah, what's, what's the role of culture, our cultural, uh, you know, our big institutions, like the Museum of Art, and our, our little uh, institutions? Yeah. I, I'm, Start real quick, and I'll turn over to Mike. Yeah. But I would just say that that's the essence of our humanity, yeah. right? So having our cultural institutions engaged and woven in a uh, fabric of downtown as a neighborhood, those are, those are indicators that downtown is becoming a neighborhood. You know, when you see public art, when you see the plays and uh, the programs that are happening in downtown, that's the humanity of it. So I think that, to me, is very foundational. Joyce, just a minute, Michael. Joyce, you were you and I were talking earlier about what really makes cities thrive, and it's those surprise moments. Yeah. So I was going to talk about you know how neighborhoods, why we love them, is the spontaneity, right? And I think oftentimes we are very programmed. Like we have large events and large festivals, which are amazing. Um, they were really important for activating our spaces, but some of the best moments are the the spontaneous ones, and I do think that arts and culture helps to create that. I also think that culture in Cleveland has to be unique to Cleveland. And you know, part of our philosophy for the lakefront too is that it's of Cleveland, um, as well as planning in our neighborhoods, that we want to surface um, some of the smaller artists and cultural institutions that bring that unique um, perspective and flavor. So I think it's an invitation to do more in the public realm. Um, an invitation to you, sir, to other artists to do more. 
and we have uh, hired our very first mayor's office, arts and culture, and the creative economy um, senior strategist who will be starting in late July uh, to really kind of bring to surface our, our unique culture and this person will be meeting with the large institutions from the Rock Hall to the Museum of Art. Has been named already? Uh, yes, okay. last, last week. Um, okay. Her name is Rhonda K. Brown. Um, but, all the, but really, it's kind of like the studios and the streets and, and activating those artists, taking a look at our legislation to see how we can open up much more activity in the public realm and activating our public realm to be much more human-centered. Michael, I wanted to do a, a, a little different take. We didn't have an opportunity to talk about retail. I'm thinking of those surprise moments that I have in vibrant 24-7 cities of finding like little stores that have like some surprising weird thing that like, wow, look at this. Like, 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 you know, window shopping. I get a lot of pleasure out of yeah. doing that. Mm -hmm. But those kind of stores are very few and far between. There's a lot of restaurants, there's a lot of bars, but those quirky little shops, I, I, I think of them more as the near west side. I think of them more in the Gordon Square Arts District. Yeah. You've got a retail plan. What does that retail plan entail, especially during an era where everybody's just buying, you know, especially downtown residents, Okay, if they can't get it by walking to the nearest corner store, they're going to get it by ordering on Amazon. Right, right, right. Well, uh, and I appreciate the pivot. Uh, I'll begin by saying I, I think uh, just to, to touch on the the uh, uh, the audience member's question, uh, I think our, our civic institutions uh, in downtown are integral to to the fabric of of what we're trying to create. In fact, part of the the reorganization of downtown Cleveland the organization that we just announced was really about making sure that we're engaging all of the stakeholders, uh, including our, our civic institutions uh, and cultural organizations in downtown. And to take a place like Gray's Armory, which is a, a one of a kind place, um, that our historic architecture that we've done, uh, we've worked so hard to preserve and repurpose in, in Cleveland, um, Gray's Armory is just a terrific example of what makes Cleveland Cleveland in, in such a unique place. You have one minute to answer the retail question. The retail experience, we've in, we're working on a retail action plan with StreetSense. It'll be done later this summer. But we, we engaged StreetSense, a national firm that works with downtown organizations like ours, with a focus on placemaking because we know we, we need to have the kind of retail amenities that are attractive to residents, visitors, and commuters and we want to have a, a plan that guides us uh, to something that's attainable and achievable. Uh, we'll be wrapping that up and rolling it out later this summer. All right, and that's our show, <laughs> or that's our program. Thank you to Freddie Collier, to Michael Deemer, and to Joyce Wong for joining us at the City Club today. Thank you for your participation and your enthusiastic applause. That gets me going. City Club in Public Square is presented with support from Thompson Hine, with additional support thanks to Citizens, Today's forum is also part of City Club in the Community, sponsored by Bank of America. The City Club is grateful for your continued support. Up next at the City Club on Friday, June 23rd, Sam Zarifi, Executive Director of Physicians for Human Rights, will discuss the organization's work on reproductive rights, Ukraine, and more. And on Tuesday, June 27th, we'll be back at Public Square for a discussion about the economic future of downtown Cleveland and legacy cities across the nation. You can learn about these forums and others at cityclub.org. 
And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to our speakers and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Amy Eddings and this forum is now adjourned.